First Timothy chapter number one is our text. Uh, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about the battle uh, for proper behavior in the church as we've been going through learning about how to behave properly in the church so that we can glorify God and, and minister to the world around us. And this morning, we're going to see that this is a battle, and this is something that we have to fight for. It's not something that happens naturally. We want to remember that nothing, nothing that God calls us to happens naturally for us. It is, all, it, it is all done and accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. He has to work in us, and he has to work through us. And, and, and it is often a battle, a conflict for us to accomplish what God ha- has called us to do. And the church is no different than that. It's difficult for we as a church to do the things that God wants us to do. It's difficult for us to act the way that we're supposed to act towards each other. It's difficult for us to act the way that we're supposed to act towards the lost. It's difficult for us to act the way that we're supposed to act towards God. Matter of fact, if you've been in the church for any time, or most of you as churchgoers have heard one of these statements um, at some point in time in your church life, the church is full of mean people. The church is hateful. The church is just trying to control you. The ch- this is one that we've all heard. The church is full of? Hey, see, I told you we've all heard that one, right? The church is full of hypocrites. And the church is a place of bondage. And those are just a few things that we've heard about, about the church, what people are saying uh, almost in, in many ways it's excuses that people use for not coming to the Lord's house. Um, you invite someone to church and they say, well, you know, I, I tried that before, I've been there before, and it's just, it's just not for me. And then usually they follow up that it's just not for me with some type of a, a reason like the church is full of hypocrites um, you know, Susie was mean to me one day, and so I'm never going to go to that church again. Or Bob said this to me, and, and you know, I'm just never going to go to that church again. And I hope there's no Susie's or Bob's in here this morning. So, but you, you get what I'm saying. There, there are these things that people say about the church. If you've been in the church long enough, what you know is that not only are these things said, but these things are often true. These are not just accusations that we face as, church, as a church, but the reality of it is that these accusations that are made against the church are, are sometimes true. The church sometimes is a mean place, isn't it? The church sometimes is a controlling place, isn't it? Sometimes the church is full of hypocrites. Amen? Nobody, nobody wants to say amen. You know, the church sometimes is full of hypocrites, isn't it? These statements that people are making about the church it, it, it's, it's, we can either look at them one or two ways and say, well, you're wrong about the church, or we can say, you know something, you're right, and we need help, and you will be perfect to come into our church and help us out, right? We need help. We need help in these areas, amen? We're in a battle, and, and, and that battle is a real battle. It's a serious battle, and, and it's, it's for the heart of the church and the influence or the impact of the church as well. Matter of fact, the scriptures talks a lot about these things. The book of 1 Corinthians is full of conflict within the church. In the first three chapters, the people of Corinth are called carnal, and they're called carnal because they're 
they're fighting amongst themselves. There's conflict amongst themselves. There's this uh, selfishness of, of Paul, Apollos, and, and Cephas, or Peter. And all of this stuff is going on within the church. Paul, Paul, when he writes these letters, he understands that these things are a reality. In 1 Corinthians, you have fighting over who's better. You have people suing each other in, in the courts. You have immorality. You have selfishness. You have pride. You have division. You have conflict. And that's just in one book. In the book of Galatians, you have self-righteousness. You have people turning away from Christ and trusting in their own goodness to um, quote-unquote make themselves righteous. In Galatians, you have people biting and devouring each other. You say, well, what, what does that mean? Okay, that means gossiping, talking ill of each other, trying to hurt each other with, with our words. This is, these are things that God wrote about. The book of 1 John is written primarily to discuss how to respond to a church split. People had left the church and there was a conflict over who's right and who's wrong. Is, is this the right direction or is this the right direction? And, and John writes to give affirmation to the true believers on what the truth is because they were somewhat confused. The book of 3 John is written primarily to discuss leadership in the church that had become totally controlling and full of a desire for attention. And that's not just that book, but other books deals, deal with the importance and the value of the right leadership in the church. And to be right leaders, we have a battle. There's a conflict, there's a war going on. Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven churches. Some look at this as seven church ages, but at the least there are seven churches in this. And five of them, the first one is called Loveless. They lost their first love. Then you have the church that's careless. You have the church that has no discerning. You have the church that's lifeless. And you have the church that's, that's useless. And these are things that the, the, that the Lord is writing about his own church. The New Testament is full of examples of churches full of falsehood, selfishness, worldliness, pride, bitterness, anger, gossip, and we can go on and on to the things that the New Testament talks about in regards to the church. You say, Pastor John, why do you bring that up? That sounds so negative. And yes, it is negative. But what I want us to understand this morning, what I want us to get a hold of is that we're in a battle. We're in a war as a people, as a group, as a congregation to be a church that properly represents Jesus Christ, that honors him by how we walk and how we treat each other and how we interact with the people around us. People are walking by our church and they're saying things about us based upon how we have treated them or acted towards them in some way, shape, or form throughout the week, throughout the year. Matter of fact, it's interesting that even the way that we do business, even the way that we do business in our daily lives, people connect that to our, to our church. I, I've heard it said before, well, I would never go to church there because such and such a person goes to church there and they totally cheated me in this deal. So we, ha we have to understand, as the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, that this is a battle. 
It's a battle to be the right type of person. It's a battle to be the right type of community so that we can honor and, and, and represent Christ well. So with all of these scriptures being stated in, in the Bible, and again, I only covered a few of what's all that's there, it's an understatement to say that we are in a battle to live properly in the church. First Peter 1 verse 17 says, And if you call on him as your father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of your exile or throughout your time on this earth. Conduct yourself in a reverential way. Conduct yourself in such a way that you understand that what we're fighting for is serious and that we are in a fight. And then Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, the implication is understanding the, the importance and the significance of, of being, of working out the salvation that God has planted in you, that God has called you to something significant, that God has called you to representation, and that you're to work that out, you're to live that out in such a way of, he uses the word fear and trembling here, but reverentially, that this is significant. It's, it's interesting, the people who are in war, who don't have a, a tinge of fear, tend to become a little bit lackadaisical, don't they? The guys who are in the foxholes who know that it's possible for them to get shot are the ones that are alert and ready to go. The ones who think, well, there's not been a battle for a while, I can just lay down here and sleep in my foxhole, are those that are going to be the ones that are going to be likely to get shot down. The Christian life is the same way. We're in a warfare. Paul uses this, this phrase four times in the, the book of Timothy, either um, the warfare or being a good soldier or fighting a good battle. He uses it four times in, in his letters, uh, first and second Timothy here. And I, I just want to unpack that for you a little bit this morning, if, if you'll bear with me for, for a few a few minutes. The word warfare here means uh, a military campaign. So when, when Paul says that we're to fight a good warfare, uh, to wage a good warfare, he's referring to a military campaign, a war or a contest. Uh, something where our, our lives, not physically necessarily, but spiritually, our spiritual life is on the line. Uh, remember in John 10, in verse 10, um, John says, the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In other words, the, the devil's goal is to destroy all that is good about, his, about God's church, is to destroy all that is good about God's people. The devil doesn't try to destroy a hateful person because a hateful person is already destroyed. The devil is working to destroy a loving person. The devil is working to destroy a joyful person. The devil is working to destroy a patient person. The devil is working to destroy all that is good about the spirit of God working through an individual. And he doesn't really care if we're a, a, a bad representation or a non-representation of him. So when you think about this warfare or this, this battle that Paul talks to Timothy about, it's, it's a 
military campaign. You are at war. There are guns ablazing in this thing that you can't see. It's a Ephesians 6 warfare. It's a warfare that is unseen. The word good here in the text, it says fight a good warfare. It means to be honest. To fight with with honesty and integrity, to be honorable in your fight, to be noble in your fight, to be moral in your fight, to fight in such a way that you would be approved by God in how you war. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 5, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So it's not only important to understand that we're in a battle, but it's also equally important that we have to know that we have to fight by the rules. We have to compete well. And competing well does not mean necessarily winning. Competing well means competing according to the rules. We always want to remember that the outcome is the Lord's. We compete and we do it well and we do it right but ultimately, everything is that comes of it. The, the, the uh, Paul water and Apollos, or, or Apollos planted and Paul, uh, Paul planted Apollos water, but God gives the increase. The, the outcome is the Lord's. So with that, I want to take a, a few minutes and, and, and look at four of these passages of Scripture this morning and, and look at a few things in them. Number one, what are we fighting for? What is the church fighting for? What is the battle over? If you'll go back into chapter number one, the Bible says the aim, the aim of our charge is what? The aim of our charge is, you tell me, it is love. The aim of our charge, so the, the battle, the warfare, what we're fighting for is we're fighting for, we're fighting for love. We're fighting for the love of God. We're we're manifesting the love of God. We're representing the love of God. Jesus Christ is the um, uh, Romans 5 and verse 8 for God commended or displayed his love for us. Jesus Christ is the is the, is the display of God's love for us and his in his sacrifice for his sins and his hanging on the cross and taking all of our sins on his shoulders. That's a display of his love. We're, we are representing that. So, so the battle is that we properly represent God's love. The battle is not just that we properly represent God's love, but it's also that we communicate that love to other people or we transfer that love to other people. Too many of us want to love with conditions. We want to love in such a way that says, as long as you give me what I want, then I will love you. And unfortunately, that's not the type of love that is a representation of God's love. Too many marriages end in uh, divorce or destruction because one person says, I will give you what you want if you give me what I want. And that never ends up well, does it? It's a, love is something that is giving. We are fighting for love amongst the brethren. We are fighting for love in the church. 1 Corinthians 13, verse one through three says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is, is love. What are we fighting for in the church? We're not just fighting for the truth. Yes, we are fighting for the truth, but we are fighting for the manifestation of the truth. We're fighting for the truth. We can have, our heads can be full of all of the knowledge that there is to know about God's word, but lest we're living it out, it means nothing. We can say that love is the only way, and we can walk around with bitterness in our heart. We can walk around with anger towards our mate. We can do all of these things saying the right thing and even knowing the right thing. But folks, what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy is it's not just what you know or say. It is we are fighting for the action because it is the action that people see. It is the action that represents the Lord. It's interesting because many of us, it's sad but interesting as well, many of us the pattern of our life is not such an expression of our faith that people can see our faith through how we live, which is what it, way, the way it should be, and then our talk should just confirm with what we live. For many in the Christian life, their, their talk doesn't, doesn't confer with their lifestyle. So they talk a lot, but they don't live it out. What the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy here is fight for the action Fight for the manifestation of the truth. You may know a lot, but if you don't manifest it and live it out, it does you no good, and it does other people no good. He says if we, if we pay attention to ourselves and our doctrine, we will both save ourselves and those who hear us. We are fighting for love. What, what is love according to the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and, and other books of the Bible as well? Love, what is love or what is the battle for love? Love, uh, the battle for love is not a battle to be loved, okay? The battle for love is not the battle to be loved, nor is the battle for love the battle to be lovable, Okay? That's not our concern. That's not what we're fighting for. The battle to, to be loved is, a, is an expression of pride, and the battle to be lovable is the expression of being a man pleaser. The battle that we're facing is the battle to be loving. It's to love other people. It's to express what God has shown us that while we were yet sinners, while we were unlovable, Christ came and loved us. While we were stooped in the depths of unlovability, he came and showed us love. That's what he calls us to. That's what we're supposed to manifest. So the fight for love, the battle for love is not to be loved. It's not to be seen as lovable. Well, he's a very loving, a very lovable person. He's like a big teddy bear. That's, that's not the goal. The goal and the fight is, is to be 
a loving person. True love is not what we can get, but it is what we can give. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. What is love? Then who do we love? Who are we supposed to love? We're supposed to love God. The greatest of all commandments is that we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. First and foremost, we're supposed to have a love relationship with God. And if we have the proper love relationship with God, it will manifest itself in the love relationship that we have with other people. We're to love God. We're to love each other. The Bible says in 1 John 4 and verse 20, if you say that you love God in whom you have not seen, but not love your brother in whom you have seen, the implication is, is there's a deception that's taking place in that process. We're to love God, resulting in a love for others, and then we're to love the lost. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 9 and verse 3 that he would give his own soul that he might see those who are his brothers in the flesh come to know Jesus Christ. We're to love the lost. We're to see the lost through the eyes of compassion. We're to see the lost through the eyes of a burden for their eternal souls. We're to love them with a Christ-like love, the same way that Christ loved us the moment that he came to save us. How are we supposed to love? The text tells us three things. We're to, we're to uh, the aim of this charge is love that issues from a pure heart with a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we're to love in three ways. We're number one, we're to love with a pure heart. The word pure here, the, the main focus of this word is the idea of being single in heart. Uh, Matthew 5 and verse 8, the Bible says, Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see the Lord. They shall see God. And we're to love others with a singleness of heart. In other words, we can love others with a false motive. We can love others with the wrong motive. We can love others to get something. But loving others with a single heart means loving others for the right reason. We can often tell how or why we love others by how much we love them after they respond to us. There was once a statement who said, uh, uh, an author who said, you know if you have a servant's heart by how you respond when treated like a servant. And I think the same implication applies here. A pure heart means single in heart. James 1.8, the Bible says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other. This is a single-minded love. Pure in heart means a singleness to our love. It means that we love one God. We love one wife, right? We love one. We have a singleness to our love, a purity to our love. It says that we love with a good conscience. That word means good natured, useful, or pleasant. We have a useful or pleasant perception or motive when it comes to our love. Our conscience doesn't condemn us in regards to our love. 
When we love other people, it comes from being helpful, being kind to them. And our conscience doesn't condemn us in that. And then it says from a sincere faith. Faith is just the, faith is just the, the, the package of what we believe. Our love for other people ought to be rooted in an objective thankfulness in trust for Jesus Christ. When the Bible says in Galatians 5, husbands, love your wives, it doesn't stop there. It says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, our root, our foundation for our love for our wife is Christ's love for us. In Ephesians 4, when the Lord says, um, forgive those, it says, be kind to one another, forgiving them, even as God in Christ hath forgiven you. The root of our forgiveness to others is God's forgiveness to us. The root of our love for others is God's love for us. The root of our showing mercy and grace to others is God showing mercy and grace to us. You see, the reality of it is this morning, if we allow that to be the root of why we do what we do, we'll never change doing what we do. No one will ever offend me as much as I've offended God. No one will ever hurt me, dishonor me, shame me, hurt me. No one will ever do more to me than I have done to God, yet he totally embraced me in love and forgiveness and kindness and mercy, amen? So no one can do anything to me that if his kindness towards me is the root of my kindness towards them, no one can do anything to me that would keep me from being kind to them. That's why it says that it has to be of a sincere faith. Our love has to be rooted in a sincere, an honest, a real faith. And all that God has done for us, we begin to manifest that to others. We show that to them. And we're fighting this battle. There's an enemy that wants to keep us from doing that. The enemy wants us to be bitter, doesn't it? Because bitterness, according to Ephesians 4, where it says to be kind one to another, just before that it says that bitterness does what? Quenches the Holy Spirit of God. That's why the devil wants you to be bitter. If you have bitterness in your heart right now, it's because the devil is, is, is gaining the victory. If you have anger or hatred or whatever in your heart, it's because the devil is winning. The Lord is not winning in that situation. Sincere faith, we, we root all that we do and act and, 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 and uh, towards each other and others on what Christ has done for us. So that's what we're fighting for. That's what the battle is for. What is the battle? What are we fighting against? We have to know that there's an enemy. If we're fighting for something, which I like fighting for things more than fighting against things, right? But, but realistically, right, let's be honest, if there's, if there's a war going on, then there has, to be a, there has to be an enemy. There has to be an enemy. So what is the enemy? The enemy is all those things that keep us from, keep us from loving. The enemy is all of those things that keep us from loving. Their deception. How many of you guys, ladies, how many of you ever heard something whispered in your ear or you had something, some thought in your mind that was nowhere near the truth about somebody, but it just started to spur in your mind a little bit of frustration or anger towards them? Anybody? 
You know who that is? That's the enemy. There's no truth to what he's saying. That's why, that's why Philippians 4 says to think on things that are true, think on things that are honest, think on things that are of good report, right? That's why he says that's the battle right there. There's an enemy that's fighting for your mind to keep you from loving God, number one. Well, God's failed us, right? People, number two. And the lost, number three. That's the battle that we are in. Anything that opposes or keeps us from pursuing love for God, love for others, and love for the lost is the enemy. And the love that we have for for, the, for others and for the lost is an unconditional, sacrificial, and eternal love. It is a divine love. It's the same love that God hath shown towards us. And the devil is doing whatever he can to keep that from happening. Okay? So let me give you a few of these enemies. Number one, false teaching. We just talked about this last week. What are two false, what are two false teachings or, or, or two um, errors, uh, heresies that are being taught in the world today, being taught in the time of Paul and Timothy that affected people's love for each other. Number one was legalism. If you have an exalted view of yourself, you will never love people properly. The greatest enemy or one of the greatest enemies of loving people like Christ loved us is an exalted view of self. You want to know the love of Christ? Read Philippians I believe it's chapter number two or three, where it says that he took off all of his glory, came and became a man, and not just any man, he became a lowly servant, a slave, and he died on a cross naked in total humiliation as an expression of what it means to love people, right? That's what we're fighting against. We're fighting against religious teaching that says you're better than other people because of something that you have done. And then the other one is Gnosticism, which is an intellectual-based acceptance. In other words, you're better than other people because of what you know. Neither of them are true. We're not better than other people. Thank God for his grace, amen? And we must share that grace with other people. We must minister that grace to other people. But that's what our enemy is. False teaching is our enemy. When people say that the church is a hateful place, it is their, it is their perspective of what the church is. They see something that's there. And we must be careful that we're not expressing what they're seeing. Number two, selfish attitudes and actions that oppose love. Selfish attitudes and actions that oppose love. Philippians 2 and verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There are attitudes that we can have that are going to squelch our love for others, love for God, and love for the lost. Number three, things that promote selfishness. First Timothy talks um, clearly in chapter number six that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? Why is the love of money the root of all kinds of evil? 
because it is the enemy, because it keeps you from loving God, it keeps you from loving people, and it keeps you from loving the lost. That's why it's the enemy. That's what the apostle Paul is telling Timothy. The love of money leads to pride, it leads to greed, it leads to all of these other things that are gonna keep you from doing what you're to be doing, which is to be loving other people. He talks as well in 1 Timothy chapter number six about being content because contentment will lead to loving God, loving others, and loving the lost. Discontentment will lead to not doing those things. Matter of fact, discontented people seek to be loved more than they seek to be loving. They seek to get more than they seek to give. 2 Timothy 2 and verse number four, no soldier gets entangled in the civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. Things that promote selfishness, number three, is earthly affairs. There are things in this life that we can become locked down to, whether it be the desire for money, the desire for success, the desire for acceptance, the desire for things, the desire, the, the passion for projects, the, the passion to reach the goal at the end, to, to get such a goal focus that you lose sight of what's going on in the day. There are people who are project-oriented that they lose sight of all the people involved in the project. Not people-oriented. Projects get accomplished by people. Our focus in those projects has to be on the people. That's the Lord. Number three, what are we fighting with? The Apostle Paul says this to Timothy in our text. Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. In other words, there were some prophets in the New Testament or the apostles in the New Testament that had prophesied about the Apostle Paul. There was something said from a divine origin about the Apostle Paul that was the root and the ground for him doing and saying what he did and said. What is the ground that we have? What are we fighting with? It is the word of God. That is our tool. That is our weapon. Our, the weapon that we have to distinguish between biblical reality and carnal reality is the word of God. Hebrews chapter number four and verse 12, the word of God is able to divide. It's able to discern between right and wrong, between false reality or deception, which the Satan is really good at, right, and truth. The word of God is the only thing that we have that's able to discern between those two things. So what do we have to keep us on the right path when it comes to loving people, to accomplishing God's purpose for us? What do we have? We have the word of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse four and five, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. A stronghold is an idea that, rise, that raises itself up above God. He talks about that in the next verse. We destroy arguments in every lofty, the lofty opinion that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and takes every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Our warfare, our weapons are not carnal. You don't fight anger with anger. You don't fight um, uh, uh, a, a bad situation with retaliation. 
You fight the spiritual war, and that's how you win. We fight with the word of God, number one. The second thing that he says we fight with, we wage, we wage a warfare based upon these things said by divine origin, which is the word of God. But also, in the next verse, it says, holding faith and a good conscience. The other two tools that we have, and you can go back to Ephesians 6 and see those weapons, faith is the entire package of what we believe. It's all that Christ Jesus has done for us. So when we find ourselves battling to love someone, what is the weapon that we have that will keep us loving them? It is what we know about Christ. It is what we know that he has done for us. We keep our focus on what he has done for us. It enables us to continue to do the right thing. Hence the reason why the enemy wants to take our eyes off of Christ to keep us from loving other people. It is a sincere faith again. We build our response to people and the lost and to each other on what Christ has done for us. That's our weapon. And then he says, lastly, in regards to this, a good conscience, a clear conscience. This is a weapon that we have as well. I, I, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm assuming that you're where I'm at in this. When I do wrong, I know it. When I treat somebody wrongly, I know it. My conscience inside of me says, that was wrong. That's why Timothy in this passage of scripture talks about seared, having seared consciences. Having seared consciences because people sear their conscience and it's usually related to how they treat other people. You ever heard somebody say, well, you know something? They just deserved it. You know what that is? The seared conscience. You have seared your conscience to the fact that you deserved something from him and didn't get it. You've seared your conscience to the reality of what Christ has done for you and that has kept you from doing what you should do for others. We must avoid having that seared conscience towards what he has done for us. That conscience is there for our good. It's there to either affirm what we've done or it's there to tell us you've done the wrong thing. Walk away. Go and apologize. And as many preachers have said in the past, once you begin to, send your, once you begin to sear your conscience, it becomes easier and easier and easier to sear your conscience. We're in a battle, folks. We're fighting for something significant, which is the glory of our God. And that glory of our God is manifest by how we love people in spite of what they do for us. Matter of fact, if you make it about what they do for us, it's not love anyway. It must be totally selfless. I love you because I want to. I tell you a story. Many, many years ago, I, I went through a, a very difficult time in a church that I pastored in Nebraska. And one man came to me one day and he was on the opposing side. And he and I did not agree at all. And he said to me, he came up, he sat down with me and he said, John, I just want you to know that I choose to love you. And I knew at that moment that that's what Christ did. We were not in harmony together. We were at war together. But he said, I choose to love you. And that's what we do. There are times that we're not gonna agree, but we choose to love each other. 
we choose to represent Christ well. The last thing this morning is, what are we fighting to gain? If you'll go with me to 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul tells us two things that we're fighting to gain. Number one is eternal life. In chapter 6, he says, let, um, verse number 12, he says, fight the good fight of, of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have, you have made this good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What does it mean to fight the fight to take hold of eternal life? We know that eternal life is a gift from God, right? It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we get because we merit it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the Bible says that salvation is by grace. It is a gift from God. So why do we fight in order to take hold of eternal life? The answer is this. We have something. God has given us something as a gift, but fighting to love somebody, fighting to do the right thing in a right situation is to embrace what we already have. It is to own what we already have. Meaning the gift of God that has been planted within us becomes a reality to us as we fight to live for him. The reality of it is this morning is, is if you're not a believer, you will not fight to live for the Lord. But if you are a believer, you will fight. And the fight is the evidence that you are one of God's children. The fight is the embracing of something that is yours. It is yours as a gift from God. God has given it to you, but when you fight for it, it's the embracing of that. That is mine. And the devil is not going to take it away from me. Eternal life is not something that we get by working for it. It's something that we embrace and affirm by working for it by working because of it. Something that we own as ours as we work because of it. It's the James 2, faith without works is dead because it's alone. It's the Romans 5 and verse 2, which says, through him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Eternal life is embraced by fighting for what God wants us to live out. And it's also eternal rewards. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4. You're familiar with the passage. Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. The Apostle Paul implies that those who fight this fight, those who battle for the things that are right, have an eternal reward that is laid up for them when they leave this life and go into the next. James 1 and verse 12 says, that those who overcome temptation have the crown of life. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says that those who overcome hardship have a reward waiting for them. Revelation 2 and 3, the Bible says those who overcome failures and difficulties have different rewards waiting for them. Our battle this morning is this. We're battling to love people. We're battling to manifest what Christ did for us. And the enemy is false teaching, it's pride, it's arrogance, it's desire, it's greed. We fight with the, with the word of God. We fight with a clear conscience. We fight with a faith 
and we fight because we want to manifest to ourselves and to others that we have eternal life and lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where nothing can break in and steal them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. The battle is great, Lord. You know that. You have put us into the battle. You have warned us about the battle and you have equipped us to be victorious in the battle. We pray, Lord God, that you'll help us this morning to love you, to love each other, and to love the lost and others as you would want us to do. I pray your blessing upon the remainder of our service, Lord, that it would be honoring and glorifying to you in Christ's name.